Corinthians 2, 12 through 18. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you so that you too should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. You may take your seats. Amen. So a number of years ago, Alexis and I had the great privilege of seeing one of the last live shows of the legendary jazz pianist, uh, Dave Brubeck, before his passing in 2012. The local jazz radio station there in Seattle where we lived, they were giving away six tickets to anybody that called in and put in their name every time a Brubeck tune played on their particular station. And my wife, being a bit of a jazz fanatic, knew every Brubeck tune that played, so she called in twice to enter her name and to enter my name. Now, for you non-jazz folk, when we won those tickets, it was literally for her and I like winning the lottery. We were kind of poor, it was our anniversary, and it was Brubeck. It was Dave Brubeck. And so, by the time we went to the show, Brubeck was 88 years old. He was frail. He had to be walked to the stage. He had to literally be helped onto his piano bench. But then everything went quiet. And when he began to play alongside his bandmates, all with whom he had been playing for multitudes of decades, it was literally indescribable. Every note every arpeggio, every chord construction, every subtle movement from band member to band member, every progression, it was literally superb. This room, this jazz bar in downtown Seattle was dead silent and utterly still. We were all just enraptured by this music. And even the standout solo moments amidst each of the instruments, those standout solo moments blended into the overall beauty it truly was remarkable. We were in the presence of masters, and their mastery was their selflessness for the sake of serving the song. It was perfect human harmony. So during this incredible rendition of Somewhere Over the, Rain Somewhere Over the Rainbow, the flute player was playing Somewhere Over the Rainbow, which sounds cheesy saying it out loud, but it was... It was where my soul could no longer take it. It was just too beautiful, too perfect, and I literally began to cry. The only live music event, non-worship live music event that I have ever cried at in my entire life. And so I open with that story to ask each of us a question. Why? Why do moments like those get so deep into those primal places, into our deeps, and cause us to cry? Why are we so moved when we catch glimpses of such beauty and perfection and harmony? And it is because deep in our most primal places, we ache for harmony. The disharmony of our internal being is currently racking our society and our personalities with anxiety and depression and discontent. 
The social strife of our modern day is splintering us into innumerable factions, every single one of us vying for position and power and all the various cultural hierarchies. Wars, these inexplicable, senseless, evil shootings in schools, in churches, in workplaces, these are the extremes of a creation in disharmony. And so that night in that jazz club, those old men playing their tunes It was like I was hearing echoes of something that we as humanity have lost, something that we as humanity are all longing for in our deepest places. The story of the Bible is in part a story of division between God and humanity, resulting in our division from each other, even division from our own sense of self. But the story of the Bible is also a story of restoration. God's grand recreation, reharmonizing project It is happening all around us. Jesus is the centerpiece of this. And we, the church, are his body. As we are empowered by the Holy Spirit, we, the church, we Christians, we are learning to once again live the way that we once lived in the garden. We are once again being taught. We're learning to live what we lost. That is humans in harmony Humans in harmony with God, humans in harmony with each other, humans in harmony with ourselves. And so we have to ask the question, how? How is God actually doing that in us and through us today? From our text this morning that was read, three movements is all we're going to cover. Three movements that over the course of our whole lives together restore us to what we once were and give to the world what it most longs for, this harmony. Number one, working out what's within Today, we can commit to work out what's within. Number two, we learn to live gratefully instead of grumbling. (laughs) And number three, holding on to and pouring everything out. Hold on and pour everything out. Movement number one, work out what's within. From verses 12 through 13 of Philippians chapter two, Paul writes, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Obedience to Jesus. Obedience to Jesus is the great equalizer and unifier of all of humanity. Does everybody realize that the end of time, where creation is careening to right now, even as we sit here, in San Diego in 2022, where creation ends is in perfect harmony. Everything is being brought back into obedience to Jesus. Everything and everyone, everywhere, worshiping Jesus. That's where this whole thing ends. And in the mind of Jesus, obedience and worship were one and the same thing. Obedience is worship. Worship is obedience. Jesus himself said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so this is what makes the Christian community unique in the world. You'll remember from our introductory session to this letter that the first members of the Philippian church, they were a well-to-do fashion businesswoman named Lydia. Do you guys remember her? And then there was the demonically possessed little slave girl that Paul delivered from her plight. And then there was the blue-collar suicidal military vet turned prison warden. These were the first three members of the church in Philippi. Do you guys remember this? They were culturally, ethnically, chronologically, and socioeconomically as different from each other as humans could possibly be. But 
obedience to and worship of Jesus brought these disparate characters together as one and harmonized them around a singular song, the song of Jesus. And so here we sit in our modern Western society, and the rich and the poor are equal in their need for Jesus today. Young and old need forgiveness and acceptance and love. Every human that we come across, including you and I sitting in our chairs this morning, we all need what only Jesus' cross and Jesus' resurrection can give to us. And so the church does not rally around particular political or social movements, but we rally around the mission of the kingdom until every knee bows and calls Jesus Lord. And this kingdom is actually expressed. This kingdom, when it's being expressed as it truly is, is expressed in an array of culture and color. Black, white, Hispanic, Asian, every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Therefore, we cannot divide or align by our political preferences, by our cultural backgrounds, or by the color of our skin. Paul says we are literally neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, Democrat nor Republican, male nor female. On and on the list goes. Now, I'm like you. I hear exactly what you're asking already. Dan, I think that's a swing and a miss on the part of the church in modern society. Let's be honest. Or you may be saying, Dan, I, I, I love your idealism. I think, wow, every tribe, tongue, nation, beautiful. But I'll tell you what, that has not been my experience in the church. And to you, dear friend, I would say you're absolutely right. And that is why it may be the most important challenge and call of this generation for you and I together to not allow the failures of a malformed Christian culture to get in the way of what Jesus wants to and is doing in the church by his spirit for the sake of the world. Is the church divided today? Horrifically, yes. <laughs> Are there terribly painful things in the church? Yes. Are there ridiculous things that we rally around? And are there righteous things that we rally around that are not the kingdom of God? 100%. Have you and I possibly been hurt a little bit by the church? Certainly, without question. We are not trying to deny or ignore or diminish the splintering or the wounding or the hurting or the divisions within Jesus Christ's body in our current generation. But instead, what we must do, you right there in your seat, as we practice Jesus's way, we have to ask ourselves personally, and I invite you to ask this alongside me, what is my part in this mess? This is my team. This is my gigantic, dysfunctional, divided, messed up family, and I have a part in it. Am I playing my part? No matter what the church has done or not done, am I personally maturing in my resolve to be one with this group of people? Am I sacrificing? my preferences? Am I listening more and talking less? Am I working at forgiving those who have wronged me? Am I pursuing those I have wronged for forgiveness? So the fact that the smattering of folks here this morning, that you are here, that you are here, that's a win for you and I. Well done. So many have given into the cynicism and the hurt. They have, they have left the community of Jesus Maybe you're on the verge of this, leaving the community of Jesus with your fingers pointed at everything that is wrong in the church. But instead, because you're here this morning, I want to invite you to actually lean in 
to pray more fervently than ever for those who have left, and to always be that person of hospitality, keeping inviting, keeping bringing people in, even in your own brokenness, even as you want to point the finger, we resist that, saying, no, I'm going to keep inviting people back into my broken, dysfunctional family because that's the part that I play. And for those of us who do remain, this small remnant For those who say, I'm going to look to Jesus and look to my dysfunctional family and stay the course, there is reward beyond imagination because while it blows our minds and it seems so impossible and so idealistic, this little gathering of people and hundreds of thousands of millions of them spread throughout the globe, mega churches and tiny churches, we get to be and we are the solution instead of the problem. But we are not unless you take responsibility today. Don't you see that, friends? I want you to feel the weight of that. We should feel the weight of that. We should respond to that with gravity and thoughtfulness and prayerfulness. What is my part? Friends, it's easy to point the fingers. But to be crucified with our king for the sake of this world, that is Christianity. It is a cross-carrying call to each of us out of his love and mercy. And renewal and revival, it begins in the depths of our personal souls, and then like a fire, it begins to spread. This is terribly hard work. I don't want to diminish this. It is very complicated. It is very, very messy. It is very, very difficult, which is why Paul's language reflects that exertion in the verses that we read. He says, work out your salvation. Note, he says, work out your salvation. Your there in the Greek text is actually plural. Salvation is not an individual project. Salvation can only be worked out in the church within the complex, difficult, and spiritual relationships of the church. The Bible, friends, does not have a category for a Christian that is not deeply intertwined with Jesus's community as a member of his body. It just doesn't exist. The guy out golfing this morning saying, I love Jesus, but I hate the church, is is hedging on leaving Jesus because he is not part of the body. That's his heavy realities. And so Paul said, work out your salvation, plural. And Paul also said, work out your salvation, not work for your salvation. This is so key. He said, work out what has already been given. Forgiveness this morning is ours. The spirit in this place is ours. The scriptures are ours. Mercy is ours. Our responsibility is to take what has been given through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Our responsibility then is to prayerfully and earnestly work the contours of the kingdom out into our conscious belief systems, out into our relationships, out into our society. God is the one who is already, Paul tells us, God is the one who is already working in us to unfold his purposes through us as individuals and collectively together. The Holy Spirit is already giving to each of us a whole new set of desires that we have to work out. The kingdom has already given to us a whole new set of values and definitions of success that we then have to work out. And this is key. Our salvation is unconditional. It's a free gift received by faith. And then we, as his people, labor, sweat, cry, forgive, and work it out in the midst of our dysfunctional, divided family over the course of our whole lives for the sake of the world. And Paul says this salvation is worked out with fear and trembling. Did you catch that? 
We modern Christians, including myself, tend to have this not-so-subtle aversion to any sort of fear and trembling language in reference to God and our relationship to him. It's because we have these images of sweaty fire and brimstone preachers just browbeating their congregations into submission with visions of an angry God lashing out in rage. Those images, those memories, those kind of tropes have at best confused God's people about who God is and at worst have driven many away in despair. Why would I want to stay near a God that hates me and rages against me? Fear and trembling language. Paul uses it, so it's important that we meditate here for a bit, regardless of the misunderstandings and misapplications of that language. The foundation that you and I work from as we work out our salvation is a fixed salvation. Our fear and trembling isn't fear and trembling because of hell or God's wrath. It's rooted in our already savedness. And so this has to be said. Fear and trembling is not because of hell and wrath, but we would all benefit from a restored sense of awe when we commune with God. There's this ancient Hebrew rabbinic saying, and it says, God is not your kindly old uncle. He's an earthquake, an all-consuming fire. Think about it for a minute, you guys. When we pray, we are communing with the maker of a trillion sons, a trillion, trillion sons. In other words, when we pray, we are interacting with the creator of all that is. That's pretty big. That's pretty powerful. And our response to a brush with such a being should be an unconscious, healthy dose of fear, but a good fear, one that respects this power, this grandeur, this beyond us. Guys, we do this so easily with humans. Have you guys ever watched somebody meet Billie Eilish or Justin Bieber? Like, they're literally fearing and trembling and crying. For you theology nerds, I had the opportunity a couple weeks ago to spend an afternoon with Tom Wright, N.T. Wright. He's probably the most influential theologian of our generation. And as I walked, he's just a little English teddy bear of a man, and you just want to have tea with him. But as I walked up to him, I was like, <laughs> fear and trembling. The man has changed my life, and I love him, and he has global influence. And, and have you ever had that, that mentor, that authority figure in your life, and you just, you know they love you, and you know you love them, and you just want to please them, so you fear disappointing them. You tremble at the thought of, of disappointing them. That's what Paul's getting at. Fear and trembling are the mark that the Spirit is really putting us in contact with the true creator God instead of a God of our own imagination. The Spirit connects us with this massive God. I think some of my first moments of experiencing God were before I was a believer, sitting on some remote mountaintop in the Sawtooth Idahos, at Idaho Mountains in the Sawtooths. Like 10 years old, waking up with my dad next to me and my little brother next to me. We're in the middle of nowhere. We used to pick these logging roads and just disappear into the mountains. And looking up and seeing these stars, and I think the Spirit was helping me realize, whoa, 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 whoa. There's something really big out there. And so this bigness, this vastness, the Spirit puts us in contact with him, and then he creates these desires to please him. And that's the fear and trembling that Paul is getting at, that our community works its salvation out of. And that, friends, is the beginning of renewal. If apathy, if God is tame, if God is controllable in your world, the Spirit wants to reawaken you to who he is and birthing you desires to obey him. As the church works out her salvation, this fear and trembling, our lives become songs of thanksgiving. Movement two, 
Live gratefully instead of grumbling. How is God reharmonizing creation? Well, first the church begins to work out what she's already been given, and then we sing songs of thanksgiving. Our lives become lives of gratitude. Work out what's within. Gratitude instead of grumbling. Paul says in verse 14, do everything without grumbling or arguing. If you have your paper Bible, underline that, exclamation point that, get out your highlighters and highlight that in your Bible so that every time you open to this page, your eyes will be drawn to that text, to everything without grumbling or arguing. This command that Paul gives, it's drawn like a good Hebrew rabbi from the stories of the Old Testament, Israel in the book of Numbers. The story with Israel, Israel had been saved from the oppression of Pharaoh. They had been delivered from the hell of Egypt. They'd seen the Red Sea part. They'd seen God's miraculous provision in the desert. But as they journeyed with God at every moment of opposition or uncertainty, instead of trust and gratitude, they grumbled against Moses and they argued with him, thus grumbling against God and arguing with God. Let's talk a little bit about our grumbling. Um, Am I the only one that ever grumbles against God? (laughs) No? Will you raise your hand, please, and join me in the... Oh, God, I love you guys so much. It's nice when we're just, like, the size of an oversized, like, small group. I feel like we can just chill out and be honest with each other and get super transparent on these Sunday mornings through the summer. Our grumbling, where does it come from? Two, two, Two places our grumbling comes from. Sinful entitlement and our confusing experiences. We grumble against God because of our sinful entitlement and our confusing experiences. Think about this. The blessings of modernity have, I would say, spoiled us as humans. We have now an unchecked sense of entitlement. Our technological advancement, our relative comfort, our wealth, our relative lack of suffering, these things have utterly persuaded us that we know how and when and why God should do or shouldn't do something. And so then when God doesn't do what we think he should do or doesn't do what we don't think he should have done, we grumble, we argue, we murmur, we complain, we throw tantrums, we shake our fist, all the while forgetting that God has delivered us from hell that we are no longer children of darkness, that we are loved children. We forget that God is not predictable or controllable, but that he is good. And if it's not our sinful entitlement, then I would say even more so, at least in my life, I grumble against God because of our confusing experiences. No matter how many miracles we've seen, there are just as many confusing and disorienting experiences in our journey with Jesus that don't make sense to us. We will go through long seasons with a lack of a sense of God's presence. Unanswered prayer. Thousands of unanswered prayers. Unmet expectations, dreams lost. Uncertainties, confusions. Moments where it doesn't seem like the Red Sea parted and I got to walk through it. It's these things that begin to pile up and they begin to cloud our perspective. They take the preeminent place in our lives. These unmet expectations and these unanswered prayers, they begin to blind us so that we can't see where God has actually answered our prayers. All we can see is where he hasn't. They begin to blind us and we can't see that God is with us. We can't feel or sense that he is near us because we're so needing something that he won't give to us. We can't remember that God has saved us. And so working out our salvation in fear and in trembling means we first have to repent of entitlement, that we don't know how the world should be run, 
And then we have to trust in every experience. We have to trust in every moment. And we have to employ gratitude as a weapon against grumbling. The way we do that is by reflecting on who God is continually, drawing our minds to him continually, reflecting on his infinite grace, going back to the basics. John 3, 16, God so loved us that he gave his only son for us. Therefore, nothing will come to pass in our lives that is not going to be worked out for our good according to the purposes he's working in us. We learn to give thanks for roofs over our heads, family and friends and good food and the smells of flowers and the smiles of babies and a million other miracles. Gratitude, instead of grumbling, learns to agree with God about what he has said about us and done for us instead of arguing our will against his continually. And so Paul says that we fear and tremble and we do so without grumbling. We do so without grumbling so that, verse 15 of Philippians chapter two, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. Paul talks about how this gratitude, this grateful life that's being worked out in a desire to obey God, enables us or it purifies us, making us blameless in the midst of this crooked and warped generation in which we live. This sentence here in verse 15 of Philippians chapter 2, it's heavily freighted with Old Testament imagery. And so we tend to think of the blameless and pure language as like strictly moral terms, not sinning. But in reality, the blameless and pure language is actually drawn from the Old Testament sacrificial imagery. These animals, these animals were brought in the The text says that they were to be blameless. (laughs) They were to be pure. They were to be without blemish. The animals that the priests would bring into the temple as sacrifices. And so what Paul is saying is, as we live out our lives with gratitude, as we live out our lives in fear and trembling before God, there is this blamelessness that is produced in us. There is this purity that is produced in us. And it is what delivers us from our anger and our unforgiveness and our embattlement and our our splintered experiences, these things that are actually warping the generation around us. This is what causes us to become cities on the hill, lights in the dark, stars in the night. Now, when Paul talks about us becoming stars in the night, that's actually drawn from Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, where Daniel says this, And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. I would invite each of us to start praying through the summer this prayer. I've been praying this for about a year for us, that our community would be Daniel 12.3 Christians, that we would be Christians who exist for the sake of others, that we would work out our salvation for the sake of saving others, praying to turn many to righteousness. Brennan Manning, that great, Methodist preacher and priest, he talks about how gratitude in the midst of the darkness becomes light in all of the chaos. He writes this, to be grateful for an unanswered prayer, to give thanks in a state of interior desolation, to trust in the love of God and in the face of the cruel circumstances, obscenities, and commonplaces of life is to whisper a doxology in the dark. I think more than ever, Manning's quote nails it for us. Wherever you are this morning personally and wherever you are circumstantially, wherever we are socially, 
wherever we are politically, wherever we find ourselves this morning, to shine like a star in the dark night is to whisper a doxology in the dark. And that whispering, that whispering comes from a place of being just on the brink. It's not a shout of confidence. It's not, I'm there, I'm, everything's awesome. It's, Father, I trust you. Father, I trust you. I praise you. I pray to you. And I will hold on and continue to pour everything out that I have. Movement number three, work out what's already been given to you. Gratitude instead of grumbling. Hold on and pour it all out. Verses 16 to 18. Paul says, hold firmly to the word of life. And then I'll be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. We as the community of Jesus, in the midst of the darkness, whispering our doxologies, we must hold firmly to the word of life, meaning the scriptures. We have to allow the scriptures to order our ways and recreate harmony where sin has malformed and warped the world around us. And this, in this generation, is a great challenge. There is immense pressure on each of you to give up and to compromise. That intensity is real for all of us. Paul warned in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 to 4, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Paul was saying that in these last days, there will be many who will turn from the word of life, redefine, reinterpret that which fits with the world or fits with their own fleshy desires, that which makes God predictable or controllable. And there will be always, Paul said, a remnant of people, a small community of people that will be stirred by the Holy Spirit who will say, though this looks so strange in the eyes of the world, and though this actually feels so strange to me, I need to, I must hold on to this word of life. I must trust and hold to the teachings of Jesus. Now, it's so important. When we say hold on to the scriptures, hold on to the word of life, that doesn't mean that we're the people that walk around saying, the Bible says it, so I believe it, and that's it. <laughs> the Bible says it, I believe it, that's it. Listen, that kind of thinking is not honest with the human experience. Nobody actually does that. Nobody does that. Nobody is actually out there saying, the Bible says it, I believe it, and that's it. Even the most adamant person who's saying that, underneath all that, it's just a facade to cover their insecurities and fears and uncertainties. That kind of thinking is not honest with the human experience, nor does it honor our minds and our rationality that God has given us. And if you've been part of Neighbors for any amount of time, you know that that is not our MO. To hold on to the scriptures means we actually embrace our doubts, we face the difficulties, and we let those doubts and difficulties drive us into deeper and deeper questions greater investigation, honest conversations, and prayer. Where the world challenges Jesus' teachings, the responsibility is on us to hold on and ask hard questions. We have to hold on by saying, okay, okay, why would Jesus teach this or that? Why would God command this or that? Why would God allow for this and not allow for that? 
What is God's design for human harmony and why? What I'm trying to get us to grasp is that holding on to the scriptures is asking all of these difficult questions and peeling away the layers and meditating and exploring. We have to ask ourselves, why is this way of being human in the eyes of God and according to his revelation about himself and the world, why is this way of human being human causing us to become crooked and warped? And why is this way bringing harmony? Why is that? Holding on to the word of life means meditation and study and exploration. And it means actually processing these really raw questions, these really kind of disorienting questions with our community, working it out layer by layer by process. But more importantly than that, holding on to the word of life, holding on to the word of life means that we hold on to what the word of life says about us. We have to hold on to what God says about us, no matter what we're facing. Pete Gregg, in his phenomenal little book on unanswered prayer, writes this. When we're scared and hurting, when life feels chaotic and out of control, it's more important than ever to anchor ourselves in the absolute and eternal truth that we are dearly loved and deeply held by the most powerful being in the universe. That's what we're holding on to, that we are loved children of God no matter what. And as we hold on to those truths, as we hold on to those truths, we then pour ourselves out for the sake of others. Paul, one last time, draws on this Old Testament temple sacrificial imagery saying, verse 17, I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith. This is the backwards way of the Christian faith and the Christian practices that creates true harmony in our souls. We pour out ourselves for something other than ourselves. We lay down our will and we seek the well-being of those around us. We absorb the scorn that the world wants to bring just like Jesus did and we obey for the sake of others. We love our friends and family members and foes. And so Paul said that it was his joy to pour himself out for them and that they should join him in his happiness. Verse 18, I am glad and rejoice with all of you, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. This morning, you guys, as we come to communion, I really feel like we need to just pray. We're going we're gonna to grab the communion elements. We have a lot to pray about as a church through the summer. And we need Jesus to truly show up. This world that we're living in, is broken, and many of us approach this morning out of a, a state of disarray in our souls. So Joshua, if you'd come up, we're going to start worship, and um, communion will be up here on the sides. If you guys will grab your communion, then I'm, I'm going to come up, and we're just going to have a time of prayer. Father, help us, Lord Jesus. We need your guidance and your direction. Lord Jesus, in a world that is so splintered, in our own experiences that are so uh, filled with chaos and disarray, only you can bring harmony. Only you, Father, can restore what we've lost due to sin and restore a sense of solidarity. No matter where each of us come from this morning, I'm just asking now that you would break open our hearts. Holy Spirit, that you would break open our hearts 
to once again commit to our part, to play our part in this grand story of love and restoration and hope. And the cross is the center of this. The cross is our hope and joy where you became one with us, died for us, and resurrected. Direct this time of prayer now in Jesus' name.